Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On the podcast this week, it's all getting extremely real in the US presidential race, with Joe Biden casting himself as a figure of the light fighting the darkness, and the Republicans offering a menu of fear, loathing, and a whole lot of junior Trumps in this week's convention. We have not one but two upstanding American citizens here to help us understand what's happening right now in the race and what could happen between now and November, as Trump signals that he'll simply discount any result that he doesn't like. Plus, it's Wednesday and it's your last chance to eat out and help out. Will it be mushrooms, fried onion rings? You'll have to wait and see. Was this the right subsidy or just a gimmick? And with the fashion, travel and live entertainment industries all on the floor, has COVID changed consumerism permanently? All this and more on today's Bunker. Hello, welcome to The Bunker. Before we start, don't forget The Bunker versus Romaniacs live Zoom on Thursday 24th of September at 8pm. It's open to all Patreon backers and ticket holders for our postponed live show at the Leicester Square Theatre, so search Patreon Bunker to find out more and to sign up. Let's say hello to the panel. Back in The Bunker, it's actor, writer, columnist and commentator Sturdy Alex from Twitter, aka Alex Andreo. Hello Alex, how are you? Hello, hello, hello. I'm very well, thank you. I'm glad to hear it. You must be relieved that uh, school's chaos is now definitively over because Boris Johnson has seized control of the issue. (laughs) His famous command of detail is going to reassure the nation, surely. This is, by my reckoning, the fourth time he's done this. Um, Gone on holiday, let things degenerate to complete chaos. And then, you know, the Daily Mail and Telegraph are all trumpet that he's back to take control. Sixth, if you count the time when he was mayor of London and he was on holiday while London was burning with the riots and refused to come back from Italy for days and days. To me, the obvious question is always, why is the prime minister of the country not in control to start with? Yes. Maybe that's just me. Mm. I mean, this whole thing has been framed in terms of the health of your your kid on the way back to school. And, well, your kid could always be hit by a bus, so put put them back into school. But it's not framed in terms of the health of the teachers. It's awful, isn't it? Mm. It, it, I saw Jenny Harris uh, was doing the rounds of all the studios yesterday um, in an effort to reassure parents worried about sending their kids out. Her argument was, you know, chill out about COVID. Your child is more likely to be hit by a bus. And I just thought... How does that reassure parents? What are you doing? Also, rationally, as an argument, it's so caca because the risk of COVID does not replace the risk of uh, your child being hit by by a bus. It's on top of the risk of your Hmm. child being hit by a bus. (laughs) Otherwise, allowing a kind of slight therapeutic, maybe homeopathic being slightly hit by a bus would prevent you getting COVID then. You'd be okay if that was the case. Not to mention, you know, the fact that if if your kid gets hit by a bus and gets away with it very lightly, they are unlikely to transmit being hit by a bus to your grandma. Yes, and they also don't become immune to being hit by a bus. But anyway, never mind all that. (laughs) Labour are within two points of the Conservatives at the moment. The Mail has basically dragged Johnson back from his tent out of Scotland, and he's now subbing for (laughs) Gavin Williamson. Where are we on the arc of government disasters at the moment? At at, at this point, a sacking would usually lance the boil. I wrote about this in the Byline Times last week. Um, A sacking would lance the boil if you could credibly make the argument that it's this incompetent person that was the problem. In this particular cabinet of incompetence, sacking one person would simply put the next incompetent minister in the uh, in the hairlines. And so I think they've decided that they have to stand off altogether because if they were to sack someone and the press and the opposition smelled blood, then you know, why not the housing minister who did a deal with someone at a party? Why not the health secretary that promised to uh, introduce a a world-beating tracking up by May? You know, where does it stop? You can't lance the boil when it's all boil. Back by popular demand (laughs) after her debut in July. From San Francisco, now resident in London, it's Yasmin Saran of The Atlantic magazine. Hello, Yasmin. Welcome back. Hi there. Thanks for having me back. You've got a meaty piece up on The Atlantic this week arguing that the pandemic won't bring down the populists, no matter how badly they've handled it. Why is that? We thought this was literally the only silver lining of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate to be the bearer of, of further bad news. And, and you know, in a way, you're right. Uh, this crisis has been noticeably bad for a lot of populists. I mean, as I mentioned in the piece, you know, it's really brought a lot of credible mainstream leaders to the fore. It's 
bolstered um, experts and and global institutions, two of populists' favorite proverbial punching bags. Um, It's cast a lot of their favored wedge issues um, to the wayside. But these are all short-term setbacks. And the argument that I make in my piece is that we should be wary of longer-term successes. So it hasn't necessarily been particularly good for in the long term for boring technocrats like Jacinda Ardern and, and, and Merkel. I mean, does, does, does the, has the pandemic kind of weirdly reinforced the, the populist rejection of reality? Yeah, in a way. I mean, it's it, as I mentioned in the piece, it's kind of allowed populists to do what they do best. Um, and we've seen this um, in the case of President Trump in the US in uh, yeah, Bolsonaro in Brazil. I mean, it's allowed them to sort of lambast experts to sort of assert what they believe to be true to put their their own thinking over science, and and despite that, uh, Bolsonaro actually, it's, I was just reading today um, in the Washington Post, uh, his popularity rating has gone up, and this is despite the fact that Brazil is um, the home to the worst outbreak behind the United States. So, I think going forward, it would be easy and perhaps hopeful to assume that populists on the left and the right would 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 do poorly because of this, but I don't necessarily think that's the case. I'm not convinced anyway. Our special guest this week on our unofficial US election desk is UCL Global Politics Professor, creator of the excellent podcast Power Corrupts, season two out now. It's Brian Class. Hello, Brian. Hi, how you doing? Very well, thank you. We're saving the bulk of the US presidential election for later in the show, but why has there been so little comment from United States and Britain, in fact, on the poisoning of the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. We've heard almost nothing about this. Yeah, I mean, it is depressing and remarkable. And I think it's because the West is splintered more than it's ever before, ever been before in, in living memory. And normally when something like this would happen, you'd have like a chorus of voices starting with the US, the UK, the EU, NATO, et cetera, condemning this. It would be across front pages. And I think what's happening now is there's a combination of, of information overload with bad news around the world, generally with the pandemic, and the fact that the most important voice in condemning this uh, seems to be unwilling to criticize Vladimir Putin. I mean, it, it's remarkable how when you look at Trump's past tweets, he has had more vitriol and bile directed at Meryl Streep for criticizing him during the Golden Globes than he ever has for <laughs> Vladimir Putin. And I think that's, you know, really a sign of the times, which is why Putin thinks he can get away with this. And quite clearly he can. She's a powerful figure, Brian. You've got to remember that. Um, I'm surprised that the, the Democrats have. I mean, the other Democrats kind of effectively snookered because if they raise Russia at all, it's immediately repackaged as the Russia obsessed, you know, hoaxing Democrats. Is that uh, is that why they're staying away from it? Or are they just keeping their eye on the focus of Trump himself? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that the Democratic strategy to a large extent is to let Trump incinerate himself, which is working to a, to a great degree, which is part of the reason why they haven't been out front on this. The other reason is, as you say, for, for whatever reason, the spin around the Mueller report that Bill Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, did about a month before its release uh, worked. And what's amazing is that you have recently there was a bipartisan Senate committee report, which is Republican led, that has, I mean, it it unpacks stuff that is insane. I mean, just the level of involvement between the Trump campaign and Trump's campaign manager and Russian cutouts with intelligence uh, is extraordinarily alarming, but it hasn't made the kind of waves you'd expect because it's perceived, as you say, as sort of old news. My only hope with this is that there will come a time, sort of like how the spell broke with Nixon, where you know Nixon is now widely regarded as a bad figure in U.S. politics across party lines. That wasn't true when he left office. When Nixon left office, he had still between 28 and 35% support, depending on the poll you look at. And that's after he's resigned with clear evidence of him orchestrating a break-in and cover-up um, of the Democratic uh, offices. So you know, th- this is something where I hope that with hindsight we'll begin to see or Americans who have who have not accepted this will begin to see how much Trump has been a friend to dictators who quite literally try to kill their opponents. But right now, the spell has not broken. Democrats pulled off what looked like a pretty amazing virtual convention with a genuinely moving roll call of states from across the country, an electrifying speech from Joe Biden, the inspiring debut of Kamala Harris, and a gloves-off appearance from Barack Obama, which showed that the stakes in this election could not be higher. One observer said that it was the first time they'd heard fear of the future in Obama's voice. This week, the Republicans are offering straight-up horror and fear with a grievance-laden slate of speakers, including the gun-toting couple who threatened Black Lives Matter protesters outside their home in St. Louis. 
plus guarantees that Biden and Harris will literally destroy America, and, as I said, a whole lot of Trumps on the schedule. Yasmin, before we descend into the darkness, how did the Democrats do in their virtual convention? I thought, given how unprecedented um, and unusual this year's convention is, I mean, I think for people who have watched it in in years past, um, you know, these are typically grand, big, you know, arena-filled affairs. Um, Transitioning it all to online, I thought actually went pretty well. The Democratic convention seemed very much about stressing the urgency of this moment um, and this election. I mean, I think that they clearly seem to be making this vote a referendum on President Trump and his leadership so far. But, you know, I think they're also framing it as something of an existential moment for the country. As Obama put it in his own address last week, you know, our democracy is at stake. So I I thought they did a good job of, of kind of framing it as such. Just before we started the recording, we were talking about how the Democrat convention was weirdly intimate. There was a lot of, you know, eyes to camera mm. compared to the initial bits of the Republican one we've seen, which is it's like stadium rock with no audience. The, the insane spectacle of Kimberly Guilfoyle, you know, summoning down the spirits and screeching. Uh, <laughs> it seemed very, very odd, didn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it, it felt like. I, you know, I think back to Michelle Obama's speech and, you know, it kind of felt like one of those fireside chats, like she was having sort of a, an intimate kind of conversation with you. Whereas, yeah, I mean, what we've seen of the RNC so far was, you know, seemingly these big kind of empty auditoriums, not that you can see them, but yeah, it was, it, it seemed like they were trying to impart a lot of the classical convention onto this sort of weird moment that we're in. And so far it, it struck me as a bit odd. We'll, we'll have to see if it works kind of going forward this week. Brian, we've just seen the beginning of the Republican convention, which seems to be entirely Trump-a-palooza. He's speaking every night. There are six Trumps, including him, on the bill. Uh, someone pointed out that if, you're, if your ruling group all has the same surname, you're not exactly a functioning democracy. How do you think that this approach to the convention is going to serve the Republicans' interests? Well, I think it's actually going to backfire quite badly. And I think, you know, I've done a lot of work in authoritarian regimes uh, in, in various parts of the globe. And what you tend to have is you have this whittling effect over time where people who are competent and are willing to sort of govern with integrity and truth and all the things you'd like in office, they basically get cast aside either by choice because they don't want to be tarnished by the regime or because they, the dictator doesn't want them involved anymore since they're speaking truth to power. And you're getting a bit of a light version of that with Trump, where you have the top billing, as you say, six Trumps, uh, and then a series of sort of little smattering of the cronies who are left, uh, who are still willing to either go down with the ship if he does lose, or at least be, be tarnished by the ship. And, you know, I think the reason why it's going to backfire is because that world that they've constructed around Trump, where the Republican Party equals Donald Trump, is not the world that 50% of the population wants. It's the world that 35% of the population wants. And so, you know, what you look at in this election, it's a basic math problem. He's not going to win unless he can expand beyond his base. And what we saw from night one was here is a whole bunch of stuff from people that the base love telling you that the Democrats are evil and want to ruin your life. And that message works for 35% of Americans and it doesn't work for 50%. And that's that's where they're making a serious strategic blunder in my view. Yeah, I mean, it, it did seem odd that the Democrats have framed it as relief is coming, calm is coming, sanity is coming. Here's a good guy and here's a, a, a good vice president who are here to restore normality. And all that the Republicans seem to be offering is that there's no program for the future. It's just fear. You wonder how saleable that is outside the group that are addicted to the notion of fear. Yeah, I think that's true for for two really important reasons. One is that the fear that they're peddling is to an electorate that is already extremely scared, right? Like they're saying that things are going to be terrible under the Democrats, but things are terrible with the presidency controlled by the Republicans and the Senate controlled by the Republicans and the Supreme Court in favor of the Republicans. So when people are looking outside their windows and seeing, you know, this sort of pandemic hellscape that we live in with most people thinking that the country is going in the wrong direction and the Republicans are saying the Democrats will make life terrible, a lot of people are saying life sort of is, right? Like right now, this is not what we want. And so for an incumbent to be running as a sort of agent of change is very difficult to do. Because people say, well, you had four years. Why is it bad now? Uh, And I think the second reason why this doesn't work is because the Democrats picked Joe Biden. And Joe Biden is many, many things. But one thing he is not, and nobody believes him to be, is a radical. 
So when when Trump tries to paint him as this person who is going to end American life as we know it, people sort of look around and say, Biden's been in politics for 40 years. You know, the world's been fine. So they're not they're not the people who are most likely to be upset by that are the people on the left who want radical change. But the people who are sort of centrist, the, the gettable votes in this election, they do not believe these attacks on Joe Biden, and they make them seem unhinged to the persuadable public, I would argue. It's traditional at conventions to, to, to sort of look at rising stars and, uh, and future big figures. And pretty much the only person, certainly from night one, who seems to have emerged is Nikki Haley, as who in normal circumstances will be considered to be an extreme right member of the Republican Party, but in this context at least seemed somewhat reality based did you yeah. see that yeah yeah i think tim scott and nikki haley were kind of wheeled out as sort of the potential sort of post-trump um leadership of of the republican party but then you have to remember that you know even after the current president trump um if he were to be reelected after he leaves i mean that there are other trumps kind of waiting in the sidelines so even then it was kind of really hard to tell um you know in this sort of first family convention, um, where, as you, as you mentioned earlier, you know, half the speakers are, or Trump's themselves. Um, it's, it's hard to tell if, if, yeah, if they're kind of being put forward as potential future or as the potential sort of opponents to, you know, a potential Don Jr. Uh, candidate candidacy. I was just terrified by Don Jr.'s tiny, tiny little eyes that seem to have shrunk back into his head in some kind of strange mutation. Very, very odd sight. <laughs> Alexandrea, wheeling back to the Democrat convention we talked about a minute ago, uh, Fox tried to call it boring. I long for politics to be boring. I long for it to be fireside chats and homilies. Did you see much of it? I saw some of it. Um, I, I tend to watch CNN very early in the morning where they repeat the the sort of uh, flagship programs uh, from the evening before. There's a problem for the Republicans uh, with that, I think, in that in the current environment, people might actually love boring. You know, they, they may look at one side and say, the world is on fire, literally, at the moment. And they may look at the other side and say, what's the worst that could happen? And that, I think, can be a very powerful driving force, actually. And that was actually was, that was Trump's case in 2016, was it? You know, what have you got to lose? What's the worst that can happen? And the answer is, well, this. But, but at that point, people wanted uh, uh, change. And at this point, I think people just wanted to stop. You know, they just want the madness to stop. And I think that's a really, really big driving force underneath this election. And you, you see that from the fact that I, ha- I don't think I've heard a single bit of serious, articulated, costed policy floated by either side. I don't think I've heard a single detailed thing about what, what's going to happen with health care or what's the plan for tax. The, the, the election has become so existential that none of those things matter anymore. You know, it, it, it's become more of this or some relative safety and respite for a, a few years. Do you think that any of the, uh, the populists are going to look at the Republican convention and the kind of, you know, sort of nihilistic death metal of this of this stuff and perhaps the importance of the future? That, you know, this is where it ends, where you're literally claiming the liberals want to demolish the Empire State Building and end all animals and burn the suburbs. <laughs> I mean... I don't know what our equivalent is. Is it shoot the queen? I, I don't know. I, I mean, the, the problem with that is that the, the British temperament, I think, is fundamentally different. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you run into trouble when your uh, rhetoric, when your uh, alternative version of reality, to pay tribute to, Kellyanne Conway, when your alternative truth runs into actual truth. So, you know, the Republicans claiming that they always had it right on COVID and um, no one else knew what was going on, but they took action. And and, and talking about it in the past tense, which was very noticeable in their first day, they were talking about COVID as if it had been and gone. So when that, even for the most faithful Trump supporter, when that rubs up against the reality of friends, relatives, people you know, dying, getting ill, losing their job, 
then it begins to fragment. Brian, there's been a lot of talk about virtual Biden, invisible Biden, uh, and Trump likes to kind of characterize Mr. Sitting in his basement. But the, the tactic is clearly don't put yourself out there. As you say, allow Trump to incinerate himself. Is it working? Because the polls seem fairly, you know, they, they're saying it, the, poll, the polls favor Biden rather than having it locked up. Yeah, I think it is working. And I think there's a few angles to this. One is that virtual Biden, which the, you know, sort of in Fox world, this is him being weak, hiding in his basement. For most of the American public, what it is, is it's modeling good behavior, right? It's modeling the idea that this is a serious crisis and that it's not worth endangering the, the, the lives of potential constituents to go out to, say, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Trump held his disastrous rally uh, a couple months ago. And infect and possibly kill people who support you. And so, you know, when, when you have this sort of one version of reality in which Biden is weak, and another version where it's like he's wearing a mask, he's listening to public health experts. And right now, the pendulum is very much politically in favor of the of, of the people who say, "Follow the expert advice. Let's end this pandemic." So he's he's creating an image for himself that is one that is overwhelmingly popular in the public. Do you think Trump's essentially just up against the fact that you can't make America great again, again? I think Don Trump actually said that, <laughs> didn't he? It's like you you can't remake it all over again. Yeah. So this is this is the problem. There's there's a great piece in the Washington Post this past week about how Trump's having a problem running as an incumbent because his whole political brand is burn everything to the ground. But you know he's in the White House now, so it's yeah. burning that to the ground isn't exactly going to be useful for him. I think I think the other thing that's worth pointing out here. Um, is that Biden is, there's three things, there's three lines of attack that Trump has been able to get away with and have land very effectively, I would say, against Democrats. One is socialism. So the idea that somebody's a radical leftist, that works. Two is that they're a woman, because there is still quite a lot of misogyny left in US politics. And three is race, right? Joe Biden is invincible on all three of those points. And that's that's one of the problems that Trump has. It's why he just cannot land a blow against him because his his standard three tactics are go after these these sort of you know touchstones in American politics where you know they're the socialists coming to take your guns or you know it's a woman who's going to be commander in chief or this person doesn't look like you expect a president to look because they're not white. And, you know, a, a, a person who's in his upper 70s, who's white and who's part of the establishment, is just not vulnerable to those lines of attacks. Now, it's depressing that that's true. And I'm not saying that this is a good thing for American politics to, to you know, use as a strategy going forward. But it is the case that against Trump, uh, these three characteristics that Biden has, that he's not those things, acts as a pretty fundamental political shield for him. Yeah, he's kind of he's, he's still at the back of people, some people's minds. He's still Diamond Joe from the Onion, you know, fixing a Camaro on the lawn of the White House, <laughs> all that stuff. Before we move on, let's do a Trump World quickfire. Did we enjoy the arrest of Steve Bannon on a boat by the Postal Service in, an apparent, in an apparent scene from Arrested Development? Yay! I, I didn't I mean, know that the post office could arrest people. That was yeah. Me. I bet you'll weigh your letters properly now, won't you? <laughs> Oh, it was remarkable, wasn't it? It's farcical and comical. My reference was uh, Parks and Recreation <laughs> rather than Arrested Development. That's what it reminded me of. I, I love. I just love this, the fact that he's Bannon is supposed to be this person who says we're sick of elites. You know, the sort of American version of we've had enough of experts. But in this case, the elites are on a you know a thirty million dollar yacht. <laughs> <laughs> just like it's just a, the other thing that's remarkable about this that we have to mention is that Trump has had uh, three campaign managers from twenty sixteen, and all three of them have had run ins with the law. Um, Corey Lewandowski for assaulting a reporter, and then Paul Manafort who uh, you know was convicted of a series of felonies, and now Bannon who has been indicted on felony charges. So uh, you know the, the Republicans have said about Biden that you should judge someone by the company they keep. And, and you know, if, if we were to do that with Trump, we'd have to have the convention behind bars, I think. And what, what did we make of the simultaneous resignation of Kellyanne Conway from the White House counselor role, or as Al Jazeera put it in their program guide, the white counselor role? 
which I thought was a great typo. And also at the same time, her husband from the Lincoln Project, while their daughter is tweeting, you ruined my life. This is clearly some kind of domestic, not, I mean, again, arrested development. I was going to say, this is probably one of the few instances where I believe an official when they say that they're resigning to spend more time with their family. Because I, 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 follow, I, I happen to follow uh, Claudia Conway, uh, Kellyanne Conway, and George Conway's uh, teenage daughter on, on social media. And yeah, she's been kind of posting a lot about um, kind of her own challenges. She's, she's said she's seeking emancipation uh, from her parents. And and when the news came out that both of her parents were kind of stepping down from their respective roles, um, she kind of just claimed to saying, I can't believe I've done this. Um, you know, <laughs> as, as seeing a sort of a response to them. Now, she, she says that her, her decision for doing all that re- relates to other things beyond um, her parents' jobs. But yeah, it, it was definitely uh, kind of surprising. Given who, the time. who do you think went first, Yasmin? Who do you think said, okay, Okay, I'll resign, but only if you do too. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> I, I, t- to be honest, I, I had no. Clearly, there was yeah. a pact, right? There was a, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll go, but if I go, so we can spend more time with our daughter, then you have to as well. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I do. I mean, this is gonna, you know, far be it from me to extend sympathy to the Conways, but I'll, I'll at the very least extend sympathy to their teenage daughter. I cannot imagine. <laughs> being in her position and being so kind of, you know, in the, in the social media spotlight, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, she seems to be the sort of kind of left wing savior. Um, I've loads of, you know, saw loads of people sort of treat me like, Oh my gosh, look what she's done. Um, I, I reckon that's probably a lot more problematic than that behind the scenes. I'm going to miss these collectible minor characters. <laughs> I, I yearn for the days where I didn't know like who, you know, the, the latest because I mean if you think back to the days of Obama like can you name any of his like you know senior advisors I mean you, you maybe people who are in news and journalism could but like yeah. there, there was a time where the average American or even average person overseas didn't know like who Sean Spicer was for example and I remember when I saw the news of I think I guess it would have been Spicer or maybe Bannon when I saw the news of some Trump figure's resignation the first tweet I saw was in French and that was when it kind of clicked to me that this palace intrigue is just off the charts. Um, <laughs> or like Scaramucci, Scaramucci of the Eleven oh, Day yeah. Wonder. Ah, <laughs> uh, the much. Sticking with the US presidential elections, because the alternative is talking about schools and COVID and exams, and we just want one week off, just one. It's going to be a long old 10 weeks until the election, and undoubtedly a further long eight weeks afterwards, as Trump is already trying to both discredit and hamper an election that he hasn't even lost yet. Democrats are known to be wargaming scenarios where Trump either claims victory before the votes are counted, refuses to accept the results, or ties up the account in vexatious legal action, and doubtless things that we losers can't even begin to imagine. In June, a bipartisan group called the Transition Integrity Project scoped out potential futures. One of the organisers said afterwards that all of our scenarios ended in both street-level violence and political impasse. Brian, what do you think are the most likely scenarios that Trump will pursue? Is it, is it, will, will it literally go to fomenting street violence? Yeah, I mean, I wrote a column in the Washington Post last year saying I would be surprised if there was not violence around this election. And I am even more worried now than I was then when I wrote that. And this is, you know, this comes from my PhD research was on political violence and just all of the all of the factors that cause political violence exist in the United States right now. Um, and, and I'm really, really worried about the way Trump is trying to politicize the election by discrediting it prematurely, um, such that if he does lose, he can, you know, save face in some way by saying, oh, it was rigged against me. I think the worst case scenario is if he loses narrowly. So if he loses by like two points or there's a couple states where it's a couple thousand votes, then his you know drumbeat for the last several months that this was all rigged against him, that's going to cause some serious violence. If he loses by 10 or 15 points, then I think there'd be like some lunatics that still probably would say, you know, we're going out to fight the deep state or some other fever dream that they have, but it would be very fringe. So that's why, you know, I, I hate to say it that way, but I think it's why it's imperative that Trump loses decisively to avoid significant political violence. And I also think that a lot of the currents that he's injected, the poison that he's injected into the American bloodstream of politics are not going to go away on November 4th. You know, that's the thing that we have to keep in mind is like he has primed tens of millions of people to think that Democrats are like evil, horrible, traitorous people who want to steal your guns and ruin your way of life. That doesn't stop if he loses the election. And so, you know, 
the this, the undoing the damage of Trumpism is going to be a decades long project, not a uh, months long one. It's often said that the kind of the nature of the base, which is rural, white, older, it's kind of hard to riot in places of low population density. Is it complacent to imagine that the that the base is so so scattered and, and of a particular age and character that you know you're unlikely to see the, the kind of the urban riot uh, or urban civil disturbance you know that, that, that the Republicans are trying to put onto the Democrats? So I think that's an overly rosy interpretation. What you realize? So I'm from Minnesota, for example, in the Midwest. And what's interesting about Minnesota is that in the center of the city. You have um, Ilhan Omar is my she's the representative that represents me in Congress, you know, a a far left or at least very progressive uh, Muslim, uh, you know, refugee, all the things that like Trump stands against. And you drive 30 minutes and you are in absolute diehard Trump territory. And so when you talk about these sort of, you know, rural pockets, they're rural pockets that are often within an hour of a major U.S. city. Um, And they are very mobile and and, and drive. Uh, so I, I don't think that we would be saved by population density. And I and I, I do think that the point about guns is a salient one because, you know, there's there's over 300 million guns in circulation for a population of uh, 328 million people. But that number of guns is disproportionately uh, focused in a smaller group of people who own many guns. And they're predominantly on the right politically. So, you know, What's, what's scary, and it's, you know, it's again, this is the stuff that you never would have even imagined contemplating, but what's scary is Trump saying in between November 3rd and January 20th, when the next president's inaugurated, uh, or he's re-inaugurated, God forbid, we need to take to the streets to fight the deep state. You know, this is up to you to save your Second Amendment rights or, or whatever it is. And he effectively encourages violence. And keep in mind that when there was the calls for lockdown by state governors, sensible calls for very lenient lockdowns, he tweeted a series of tweets saying, liberate this state. What happens if he says liberate America from the Democrats and people, you know, read into that with the conspiratorial thinking around things like QAnon and all sorts of lunacy that's that's very, very dangerous. I'm I, I'm dreading that period between November 3rd and, and January 20th. Turning to the actual campaign, Yasmin. Do you think, I mean, one of, the, one of the key determinants of the last election was James Comey deciding to reopen investigations into Hillary Clinton's emails very close to the election. Do you think we could, we could expect another November surprise of a similar kind? Because, you know, that, that tightens the votes appreciably. Yeah, gosh, I, I hope not. But I mean, I guess it's 2020, so you never really know. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it, it seems... You know, I, I think kind of going back to points that, that were raised earlier, I mean, Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton, um, and I think he doesn't have a lot of the hang-ups, uh, even if some of those are just basic as, you know, obviously being a woman and, and having been, you know, this relationship to Bill Clinton, whatever, all, all the reasons that, you know, Trump and his supporters have gone after her. I mean, it, Joe Biden is a, is a much, I think, difficult uh, candidate to sort of um, go after in that way. Um, you know, that said, gosh, I, I mean, I wouldn't... I, far be it for me to make predictions. I, I wouldn't put anything past anyone. I mean, I know, you know, this is kind of a silly example, but Rudy Giuliani, uh, the former New York City mayor, um, you know, turned Trump attorney, they recently claimed on Twitter that he was working on a quote unquote major expose that will completely shake up the 2020 election. And the announcement, which, which he tweeted, featured a photo of him reading the fifth edition of the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So, I mean, make of that what, what you will. But I mean, I think there'll be <laughs> all sorts of efforts, um, you know, on, on the part of figures to frame candidates a certain way to, to claiming, you know, we, we've seen it already with, with yeah. Trump kind of falsely suggesting that Kamala Harris, born in California, as was I, uh, you know, was not kind of eligible for the role. There, there will be efforts, of course, to, you know, undermine, who knows, even perhaps the pandemic, uh, you know, can, could, could even play into that. Um, it's, it's hard to say, but God, I hope not. I feel like we've been through enough as it is. Do you think the, uh, the postal ballot thing has been effectively killed off though? Because, uh, Postmaster General Lewis DeJoy, who's a big donor to Trump, seems to have revert. Well, you know, Congress uh, decided to uh, give the post office the funding it required, and DeJoy seems to have reversed uh, his decisions on slowing down the post office. Is that one? Is that one dealt with? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I 
don't think Trump could have undermined the post office's ability to fundamentally like do its job. I mean, as my colleagues have reported at the Atlantic, you know, the agency has been preparing for extended, expanded vote by mail, um, you know, for months, um, mm-hmm. even before the pandemic. Um, but what I think Trump, I, what I think the real aim of, of Trump's comments um, and, and, and the efforts by administration was, was, as Brian was saying before, to kind of just sow the seeds of doubt and distrust in this process uh, by suggesting that the only way that he could lose would be if the ballots were rigged against him. And, and we saw him say that on the, on the first night of, of the convention as well. So I, I think that seems to be the, the, the real kind of, you know, motive behind this whole conversation over postal ballots. But no, I mean, in general, am I worried about my ballot getting there? No, uh, even though I have to send it from many, many miles away. <laughs> Alex. Um- we're often encouraged to see this election as a kind of turning point in the story of populism, that so much around the world depends on whether Trump loses. Do you think that other populist authoritarians are watching the Republican approach with admiration, that it's a test case in how you can so completely poison a, a democratic system that, you know, the, the, if, if your opponent wins, it's a devalued victory, if you win, you get to you get to set the terms of your own victory. I'm not sure admiration is the right word. Uh, certainly, looking at it with interest, because they have actively hitched their wagon to that particular star, and so if that star falls, that does have implications for them. Um, the system in America is very, very different. You know, in many ways, Orbán's potency in Hungary is because there's not a constitutional uh, system of uh, checks and balances and conventions like in America that can counteract an authoritarian leader. Because the truth is that Trump has been incredibly toxic, but as a president, I mean, in terms of doing things that he wanted to do, he's been quite impotent. He's been stopped uh, from a lot of the more uh, crazy ideas that he's had by the system that is around him. And so, you know, it, it's been both horrific to watch, but also quite encouraging to watch it, in that it's proved that the system, yes, it needs bolstering, but broadly speaking, it does work. We in Britain don't treat our leaders as kind of national avatars or sort of repositories of the nation. We treat, we treat the prime minister as a person doing a job of work. We've got the queen to respect. She's there for all that kind of mystical stuff. Does the kind of brutal and red-blooded nature of this contest give you pause over whether, whether Britain should embrace the idea of being a republic? Would, it, would, a, would the choice of a President Corbyn versus a President Johnson being just as vicious as this, do you think? Um, I mean, it was pretty vicious and it was really a choice between Prime Minister Johnson and Prime Minister Corbyn. Um, so I, I don't know that it would have made, the title would have made a whole lot of difference. No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a small R Republican for reasons which go way beyond uh, a particular electoral contest. I just think that if you have a system that accepts that someone is better by virtue of their birthright, then you accept that for all people in that country. And so I think it's the monarchy that sustains um, a system of aristocracy, that sustains a system of honours, that sustains a system of, uh, you know, Etonians becoming prime minister more than uh, anyone else. So I think a lot of it uh, flows from the top. I find the, the particular monarchy at the moment... Uh, relatively innocuous, but I find the system of it to be profoundly toxic. Brown and Yasmin, before we move on, do you think the Republican Party can reconstruct itself after this? Can it be detoxified, or is it is it a burnt boat? I mean, I mean, I guess I'll just kind of chime in to say that um, I don't know. I mean, it's it, again, it's it seems rather a risky gamble to kind of center everything around one individual. Um, I mean, something that really struck me about the the Democratic convention was how many um, sort of Republican rebels um, were kind of out on display. Um, you know, you had Ohio Governor John Kasich, you had Colin Powell, uh, the Secretary of State under Bush, um, and, and you had um, late Senator John McCain's wife, Cindy's. Um, you know, it, it really kind of felt like the Democrats were trying to as a matter of necessity, builds this 
incredibly wide tent, whereas the Republicans seem to be doing the exact opposite, which is just crafting the smallest one around this one individual. Um, so yeah, I, I have no idea what a few, I, I, I think we'd be hard pressed to find Republicans who could tell us what the party will look like in four years, let alone eight or 10. Yeah, I think I think that just to add to that, like there's two ways of thinking about this. One is the optimistic, logical way, which is that when you lose an election badly, you reform the party and make it more palatable to a larger number of people. Um, that's what they should do, and that would bring the Republican Party back from the brink. What seems to be happening is this sort of doom loop, where if you're not willing to completely incinerate your integrity on the altar of Trumpism, then you are not good enough for the Republican Party, and therefore you're forced out, which makes it smaller and smaller. And the reason why that can still work as a strategy is because of the way that American institutions are set up. So that, for example, in the Senate, there's two votes per state, and the distribution of population is moving towards larger states, giving the small states disproportionate votes, or disproportionate voice, rather, to their population. So you can sustain a significant amount of power in the United States as a minority Republican Party, winning 35 to 45% of the vote because of the Electoral College and because of the Senate. And there is a possibility that the party will just keep getting more and more insane. And we may be here in 2024 talking about presidential candidate Don Jr. with Ivanka as the running mate. Oh, God. Finally, it's your last chance to eat out, to help out, if you're listening on Wednesday, that is. Some 10.5 million people tried Chancellor Rishi Sunak's scheme to support restaurants in its first week with an average claim of £5 per diner. If that holds up, the £100 million scheme will end up costing £200 million. And since its inception, there have been a lot of claims it's a bad use of subsidy in the wrong place. And that's on top of the Telegraph calling it a catastrophe that will only make our already obese nation fatter. In the meantime, Britain is falling into the deepest recession in living memory with a historic 20.4% slump in GDP. And it seems unlikely that any spending boom will be there to rescue the economy. UK sales rose in June, but the furlough scheme is about to end, forecast to grin, and you may have noticed that the daily email you get from your favourite clothes shop is now selling you home athleisure gear and not autumn workwear. So (laughs) how are we going to get out of all this if COVID has permanently changed consumerism? Alexandro, first up, have you tried eating out to help out? Almost. um, I, I was going to do it, but then I decided that since both I and my partner still have our incomes relatively intact, we were going to go and support our sort of favorite local place on a Saturday because um, we didn't need to use the scheme. Uh, and I've only been out for dinner the once. I can inform you that today, as that all reservation websites are crashing and burning today as people try and get the last, the last 10 quid out of Rishi Sunak, figuring they're never going to get 10 quid out of him ever, ever again. Uh, initial data said 39% of users said it was their first meal since lockdown. Do you think we just bought dinner for a load of people who don't actually eat out that much and won't again, won't again after it ends? Yeah. It, like I like I always said, the the nudge works provided people think it's safe to go out. So you know there are you can work on the pull factors, and this was working on the pull factors. But you have to also work on the push factors. And when the push factor is that you know advice on wearing face masks is unclear and there's a flare-up in my local area, and there might be a local lockdown, and numbers are getting high again, then I don't think £10 can convince you to take that risk. I mean, it's weird, because the whole country basically has separated along this ghastly cultural line of uh, being people who think the whole COVID thing is overstated, and people who think the whole COVID thing has you know, is a real danger and has been handled badly. And so I think you're going to pull a lot of people from the former group and you're going to convince very few people from the latter group. Shopping is usually a, a kind of a, a, a certainly a newspaper front page index of supposed economic health. But the motive of the past six months has, has been literally everybody saying, I'm sorry, I'm waiting for a delivery. Do you think this is a permanent change in consumption at home delivery, Netflix delivery, Amazon, or is that just true of cities? I think it is a permanent uh, um, change, and I think it was heading that way anyway. So COVID has acted as the catalyst that has made the transition from physical stores to online 
much faster than it would have ordinarily been. But yes, I do think it's permanent. Yasmin, has it changed your uh, patterns of consumption? Is it all Yodel and DPS and Hermes <laughs> at your place? Uh, it's it's been a lot of Amazon Prime, unfortunately. It's very um, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's definitely changed. I mean, I think you know because I kind of think of everything now as sort of a calculated risk, like. You know, obviously, I'm going to go to the grocery store when I need to go, though I now have the option of ordering it in. So that might, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to think about going back to want to lugging like several, several bags from Sainsbury's all the way up to my flat. Um, but yeah, even when it comes to like, you know, just normal shopping, um, you know, you kind of think, do I really want to get on the bus or the tube to get to that store that I'm quite fond of? I mean, you know, it's just when I can just order it online. Yeah. I mean, I went to the shop over the weekend for the first time in God knows how long and bought myself a pair of sunglasses just in time for British summer to end. So <laughs> I really feel like I'm all set for 2020. I don't need to go shopping again. The, in, <laughs> and the, there's an acknowledgement, by the way, of, of the huge change in the Office of National Statistics latest data, the inflation data, because they put out the inflation data, but they also put out a little note that said, we're going to have to look at this again, because the basket of goods, the way we had constituted it, that included things like entertainment, cinema tickets, clothes, shoes, is no longer representative of what people are buying. So it, it's changed our shopping habits in a really fundamental way. So basically all those things are out of the basket and in goes like jeggings or something. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> living our life at home well it's interesting to see the figures from the us were indicating that malls are being severely affected which makes sense enclosed social spaces we've seen a lot of big names like j crew and neiman and marcus go bankrupt but big box retailers like home depot and walmart are prospering and you know i wonder if that's partly kind of geographic in that the areas where home depot and walmart are huge are also possibly a little bit more mask skeptic i mean are we going to go and see are we going to see retail income become dominated by giants only and amazon yasmin do you think yeah i mean i i mean you think about the stores that are doing well as you say home depot walmart i mean these are places where people can go you know i mean we're spending so much time in our homes now even though lockdowns have kind of relaxed a bit i mean these are places where we can, you know, kind of fix our space and where we can buy practical things. Whereas, you know, I'm not personally inclined to go to J. Crew or Neiman Marcus because I don't have anyone to see. So, you know, maybe for a socially distanced picnic, but like I'm not trying to impress anyone at work or anything like that. All they can see of me is through my Zoom square. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably predominantly the reason that what people need right now, what, what are seen as sort of expenditures that seem legitimate are things like, you know, fixing up your house or... Yeah. You know, or as you say, buying I, leggings. I put a pair of shoes on that are not flip flops for like the first time yesterday in like two <laughs> months. Honestly, I mean, I, I've worn shorts for the last ninety days straight. Like, I just, I don't know. I think it's it's lovely. <laughs> I was wondering whether you know, because we are we're all only seen from the neck up now. Whether this is going to bring back, you know, the Elizabethan ruff is going to come back because it's the only fashion. <laughs> I just. The rest of you is just in a crappy T-shirt, but hats, how hats are going to make hats. a massive comeback. Well, Yasmin's ahead of the game with sunglasses. I wanted to ask both Brian and Yasmin: Did you get your twelve hundred dollar Trump check? I, I, I did not. Oh, I was. Yeah. I did. <laughs> I was surprised. I wasn't expecting to. Did did did, did you spend it on anything nice, or have have you given it to no. Planned Parenthood? something liberal i've kind of just held on to it i wanted to see i mean yeah i haven't really known what to do with it as i said i, I wasn't expecting it i don't know why i just thought you know i'm i i live abroad and thankfully gainfully employed um but yeah no I, I decided to hold on to it and kind of see what the winter brings i'll either donate it or have the federal government pay for part of my student loans i i haven't really decided um, my wife it's sitting on our coffee table like this kind of like this, like the monkey's paw or something, like this piece of evil sitting there glaring. <laughs> oh no, it's just, it was just, it's a bit weird because, like, you know, you kind of get a letter from the president being like, "My fellow American, your check has come," and I know it, it actually got delivered to my old flat, so I had to have an old flatmate come and um come deliver it for me. So it was a bit of a, it was definitely a surprise. I need to look into why I haven't gotten it. I, I think I, I've been in the UK for about a decade, so maybe I've like not paid because I, I mean, I my my taxes are through the UK now. So I don't know if maybe they've decided that I'm not fully American or something, or I, I tweet about Trump too much and they didn't give me one. Well, if they listen to your podcast, they'll know you're certainly not a real American, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> you got to let Uncle Sam know, Brian. <laughs> I know. 
And that's the end of this week's edition of The Bunker. Now it's time for us to ask the panel for their escape routes from politics, the books, music, films, TV, or whatever that are taking their minds off all the sturm and drang in the outside world. Yasmin, what are you reading or listening to or watching or otherwise distracting yourself with? Um, I've, I've given up on escaping, unfortunately. So I'm actually reading um, my colleague Anne Applebaum's latest book, Twilight of Democracy, which is about the seductive lure of authoritarianism. Hopefully it won't be relevant. <laughs> just... It is awesome. We had her on the Bunker Daily a while ago. It's just a brilliant but depressing read. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. So yeah, I've just decided to kind of lean into the reality of everything. Fair enough. Brian, how about you? Uh, I've been watching, binge-watching uh, the series The Bureau, which is a French uh, sort of spy thriller that's sort of like the more intellectual, less problematic version of Homeland. Uh, and it is absolutely fascinating, and I highly recommend it. Incidentally, speaking of box sets, we just finished Miss- Mrs. America, the fantastic Phyllis Schlafly bio thing with, with Kate Blanchett in it. And the final episode, they're at, they're at uh, uh, one of the political conventions, and somebody just goes, oh, have you met Paul Manafort? I almost leapt out of my chair. It was like a, a monster <laughs> appearing out of nowhere. <laughs> 1978. Alex, how about you? What are you uh, reading or listening to? I decided to start cataloguing my records. Oh, right. Regular listeners may have seen them in the background in the most recent uh, uh, live one that we did. There are about 20,000 of them. And so I've started entering their details. I'm now up to the letter C. After two weeks' work, that will certainly—that's an escape research of, of all, all escape. You're, you're going to need I've another pandemic. It. I love yeah. it. It's it's kind of it's kind of uh, zen-like because it requires attention, but it's also mechanical, and I find that sort of thing actually very soothing. That absorbs you, but has a, f- a flow and a rhythm to it. What about you, Andrew? What's your mine? Is, yeah. Uh, well. Perks of the trade, I get to see TV previews. I've been watching Soul USA, which is starting on BBC4 this Friday. It's absolutely fantastic. It is the story of soul music from the depths of the civil rights uh, movement right through the 70s to the present day. BBC4 has been playing a blinder on black music lately, and uh, I don't think either that it's entirely just a hasty reaction to the events of this year. I think it was cooking for a long, long time because these documentaries are really well put together. There's a lot of depth. There's a lot of new thinking. And I thought I knew this stuff really well. And Soul USA is giving me a completely new perspective on Aretha Franklin, Candy Staten, James Brown, Otis Redding. It's 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 brilliant. It's essential viewing. And it's Friday night because who goes out on a Friday night anymore? So I would advise you to stay in and watch Soul USA. I, like I say, I thought I knew this stuff. I really didn't. It's amazing. And that's the show. Thank you for joining us. Brian Class. Thank you. Jasmine Saran, thanks for coming in. Thanks again for having me. And Alex Andreo, thank you. Thank you for having me. Don't forget, our live Zoom is on September the 24th, free to all Patreon backers. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to support us. Amongst other things, you will get a shout-out on the podcast. And here's a few now. Hello, and many thanks for me to Eamon Clark, Martin Ford Downs, and... Quote, I'm not giving my name to a machine. Hello and thanks from me to Michael McAteer, John Kent and Andrew Horner. And finally, a big shout from me to Rachel Wilmer, Laura Watt and Andrew Glover. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Yasmin Sahan and Alex Andre. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer, Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.